Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, the unsolved 1954 lynching of a prominent black businessman sent terror through an Arkansas community. But was Isidore Banks targeted so the killers could get his farmland? We'll review Unfinished Deep South. Then we get a near real-time look inside the multi-level marketing slash sex cult Nexium with people who were there. We're talking about the HBO documentary, The Vow. Joining me to get that done is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and the one with all the wisecracks, the love of my life, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, former defense investigator, and the one <laughs> most likely to get enraged by injustice, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. I have a new title coming up, Rebecca. I'm going to be a certified pet detective. Can't wait. In another eight weeks. Let me just get my pen. That's a real thing. The script. One can be certified oh, yeah. as a pet detective. I'm actually going to be like a specialized cat detective, hmm. and I might have a specialized cat detection cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. There's a need for it, Kevin. Apparently, a, a big niche, a big, like, unserved community of, of yeah. cats with problems that need detectiving. Is that a yep. federal office or is it state <laughs> or what's... <laughs> She's going to be Cat the Bounty Hunter. Oh. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Finally with us is the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and host of the Strange Arrivals UFO podcast, our lovable negative Nelly, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. All right, so let's just get started, shall we, and talk about this podcast? Let's yeah. get it done. <laughs> That's why we're all here. That's why we're all here. We came across a list of unsolved race crimes compiled by the FBI. There were dozens of victims, reaching back to the 1930s. It was a partial accounting of America's unfinished business. And it seemed like that business was bubbling back up. Producers Taylor Hum and Neil Shea conduct a two-year investigation into the 1954 lynching of Isidore Banks in Crittenden County, Arkansas. They find the killing of the prominent black businessman may not have been solely an act of racism. There may have also been a financial motivation. Isidore Banks may have been the wealthiest person in Crittenden County. I understand that he owned thousands of acres of lands. He had owned cotton gins. He had trucks. He had a cafe, grocery store. You know, he was a corporate giant in this area. Unfinished Deep South from Witness Docs seeks Banks killers through reluctant interviews of aging residents and a record trail created by those preserving a white power structure. In Marion, we found people who still remembered Isidore, who still wanted to know what happened to him. They told us that to find the killer, we had to follow the money. So we did. And when you follow the money... You find the sheriff. The podcast also touches on the larger issue of the thousands of lynching victims not merely murdered, but erased from history. And I should mention, we are going to be discussing plot points from Unfinished Deep South. So if you want our spoiler free to review, just go to the time code listed in our show notes. So, Kevin, this podcast is a little different than other podcasts we've been reviewing. Yep. It's not sensational. It's a little bit drier, a little bit straighter. Talk about how you feel about sort of the tone and presentation of this investigation. Well, if I have a, a single knock on the podcast, it's that it doesn't have a lot of sizzle, but it is the kind of podcast that we really like here where um, it's very in-depth. Uh, you have here a pair of embedded journalists that went to the, the town and were there for two years working on a very old cold case. And they also did an awful lot where they took um, a crime and they told that story, but were also able to discuss a larger issue, a larger theme, yep. which was around racial justice and the acts of lynching. And I learned an awful lot about that practice that I didn't know. In this case, I thought it was really interesting that they presented it as that it wasn't just an act of racial terrorism, 
but that a lot of times, you know, the act was to erase that person completely. Right. Not just kill them, but uh, obliterate any record that they had been there. We've come across dozens of examples in our reporting where police files, land deeds, tax books, and all sorts of other records have been lost or destroyed. And people simply vanish. Because it was about erasing them, and it was about saying, you were here, but you're not anymore, and nothing that remains of you or your life can can be here, like it's scorched earth. And then the next step is, you know, all, all that they had sort of up for grabs in this white power structure. So your your business and your cash and your land all of a sudden, it's ripe for the taking. Now, this podcast is made. We hear that Neil Shea is a documentary filmmaker. And I think it does have sort of that flavor of that sort of earnest documentary approach. Toby, what did you think of the style of the podcast? It is very, very straight. It doesn't have a lot of the, you know, kind of sexy true crime components that even some historical podcasts that we listen to have. Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, it took me a little while to get used to it. I began listening to it on a drive, but I mean, I I just think their research, I mean, I guess it's a combination of historical research and then there's some journalism, uh, is so compelling and the story is so compelling. And I think important, uh, especially like at our present moment in time, that the content was so compelling that the sort of dryness just wasn't really much of a factor Hmm. as things went on because I was so interested in what they had to say that their delivery didn't really bother me too much. They, they also do that thing where they're, you know, switching back and forth between them. Yeah. Which I know we kind of criticized in The Orange Tree, uh, which it didn't bother me as much as it did some people in that one. And here, again, it was one of those things where for the first 15, 20 minutes, I noticed it, and then it kind of melted away as I became really wrapped up in the story and what they'd uncovered and some of the history um, they were going through. I actually do have just a small critique of the podcast that I'm going to take this opportunity to make because it has to do with the narration and the switching of the narration. There is something that kind of bothered me about the fact that the hosts of this podcast pronounced Isidore's name differently than everyone in his family and everyone in his community pronounced it. Uh, Taylor pronounced it Isidore. Uh, Neil pronounced it Isidore. And then we hear them talking to people and one of them would say Isidore and the person would say Isidore. And I just felt that there was a little bit. Um, it's a small thing. But for me, there was just a little bit of outsideriness to that. And we do hear that this couple is from Brooklyn. They're not from this place. We do hear that they, you know, looked for a story to do like this. So they they don't have an intensely personal connection to the story. And so I guess that little detail just kind of stuck out to me and kept taking me out of the story. It sounds like it was just me, but I just wanted to mention it because it's something that I hear when I listen to uh, podcasts like this. Now, Laura, you think, um, I know sometimes when we listen to stories about racial justice and a lot of these historical stories that can get really deep and very, very painful, you know, the, the detail of this murder was that Isidore was was lynched. He was hanged from a tree. He was burned. He was a very successful man in his community. We sort of heard about his rise. And then we also heard about some of the you know social justice that he tried to bring to his community by bringing the NAACP to his town. Um, but it is very, very painful at its core. And there's a lot of really racist white people in this story. This was a difficult listen for you or not, Laura Bricker? It started off, I think, more difficult, you know, because initially hearing the details right off, you know, in the first episode about how he died and how he was lynched is horrific. But like Toby was saying, I think just the level of reporting in this, which I think this is probably one of the best examples of in-depth reporting that we've actually reviewed in quite some time. So as the story got going, it was hard to listen to. It was uncomfortable to listen to. But I think that's exactly why we should be listening to it. And I think it's so timely now. And, you know, the fact that they were working on it for two years and it's now released at this moment in time is really kind of uncanny if you if you think about what's going on across the country right now. So it was hard to listen to, you know, and I I mentioned that to someone. They said, oh, you're going to not like it then. I said, no, actually, I really like it because it's just so well done and it was Mm. so well reported and so well sourced. And Mm. 
I didn't notice the dryness, I think, as much as, as you guys did, just because I was so drawn into all of the voices that they had incorporated into the story. I mean, they had so many interesting people that they included. Oh, certainly. And I also found the characterizations of some of these, you know, historical characters very interesting. One of the things that we hear about in this town is that there was this sheriff who's still sort of venerated by white people in the community, but who, when he died and then when his widow died, had millions of dollars in the bank, even though he made something like $5,000 a year. There was some evidence that the sheriff of the county had accumulated a large amount of money, more money than would be justified by his position as sheriff. When you hear that kind of thing, your antenna naturally go up. Turns out he was sheriff and tax collector and was potentially shaking down (laughs) people in this community. Kevin, what did you think of that dynamic? I could not believe that you could hold... Both of those jobs. Hmm. Because, well, I mean, I guess anything's possible, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it certainly made for what could be a really interesting criminal enterprise because they did say that even if the sheriff, you know, was not involved in a lynching, that the sheriff would have to have known hmm. and okayed it, so to speak. So then when you also have this follow-up where the victim of the crime, maybe the sheriff is the one that financially benefits. Hmm. And it's, you know, when you die with $7 million, then, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's there's a lot of smoke there. Were you at all curious as to why that storyline was dropped in the podcast? Because the podcast does move on from this theory about the sheriff being involved to other theories. You know, ultimately, it sort of lands on... You know, his immigrant Italian fellow farmers were angry, wanted his land. There may have been, you know, they thought a relationship between him and another woman, which, you know, probably wasn't true. And even if it was true, that's still racist. You know, but it kind of moves on from that storyline of, of the sheriff. Were you troubled that they didn't follow up on that? Well, I wouldn't say I was troubled. I mean, I thought that was certainly the juiciest hmm. uh, of the plot lines. But it seems like, you know, that just in reality, that didn't really go anywhere. They they ended up finding stronger uh, information about other avenues, hmm. including, you know, this house painter uh, with the bum leg who apparently confessed to the town gossip or yeah. whatever whatever her role is at the she's, Steamboat she's Museum. She's the Laura Bricker of this town. Yes. Let's be real. <laughs> she totally is. She totally is. So there were some other good directions to go on before they kind of come around and give us what ultimately they think happened. Toby, there are a lot of kind of deep historical asides in this podcast. What do you think of the way that they weave history into this story? Yeah, I, I thought it was generally done pretty well. You know, sometimes those things seem like such tangents and then it's hard to bring it back. But, you know, I think it's hard to tell the story without having some historical context. So talking through Reconstruction and then the emergence of sheriffs as being these very powerful figures in these counties, basically supporting white supremacy and enforcing it. Yeah, I I thought it was good. I thought it it would have been really hard to like get a full sense of the dynamics that Mm. were going on in that community without understanding 50 years of history leading up to it. Now, Laura, do you agree that you are the town gossip Rosalind O'Neill that we meet in this podcast? Is that you in this town? Is that the role you would play? You know, you'd be the person that the reporters (laughs) come to. You'd have all the information and yet you'd be like... Yeah, I don't want to get sued, so I'm just going to let you guess, and I'm just going to nod if you land on the person that I think actually killed this man. I'll just say everybody needs somebody like that in their town, Rebecca, and I am glad to fill that role in my town, so thank you. Well, one role that I'm glad you're not filling is the role of the other townswoman that we hear. Uh, They do talk to some pretty racist white people in this podcast, including one woman who, I mean, a lot of people just sort of have this longing for like how it used to be, which 
I always find very troubling. I even find it troubling, like on HGTV in uh in like shows that take place like in Mississippi when they're like, let's just bring back the old Southern charm of this house. I'm like, can we not talk about the old South, please, with such nostalgia? But there's a lot of that in the podcast, and we do hear from the one woman who you know sort of talks about that, and she's like, you know, I can't even put my Confederate flag out, and uh, and, and Neil's yeah. like, well, can't you like, if you yeah, wanted to? And she's you. like. Uh, yeah, so no, hard. because it upsets my kids. Almost all my relatives had slaves, but uh, I don't mean a thousand slaves. I'm talking about, you know, eight, maybe three, and they were considered family. So, yes, I am a Southerner. I would fly my Confederate flag if I could. Can't you? No, it upsets my children. Especially my daughter. I'm like, good for your kids, lady. Good for them. I mean, we all understand that, like, having slaves wasn't your idea, <laughs> but it's 2020. At least pretend you're embarrassed exactly. by the fact that your family owned slaves. Yes, at least pretend that you think it was shameful and that it was wrong. Please. Just a little bit. For the microphone. I mean, like you said, it wasn't a thousand slaves, it might have been eight. But we treated them well. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. They were Not like okay. part of the family. That part, they I was were like, like... part of the family. They were really? loved. Now, Toby, what is it about lynching? I mean, this crime in particular. I mean, these documentarians really, you know, except for the, the black voices we hear in the podcast, they can't get anyone to talk even about the fact that this crime existed, that Isidore was murdered, that, you know, this is something that deserves to be remembered and deserves to be uncovered. Would it be possible for us to maybe come by sometime and meet you and uh, talk to you in person? I really don't have much to add to the story. If I were here at that time, if I had been around when it was actually occurring, it would be different. I've had enough reporters as friends. I know what your job is. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be guilty of helping you do creative writing. What do you think of that kind of like, we're not going to talk about ism that seems really prevalent with every white voice in this podcast? Yeah, well, I think a little bit of what you were talking about before, but they, I mean, they do a good job of sort of, again, historically setting the scene with talking about how lynchings were these you know, spectator events, you know, where they'd run special trains and they'd like publish the day and time in the newspaper. So people come out and watch them. But, you know, one thing I was struck with is, you know, just how violent, you know, this community and other communities were that you would have a lot of people you knew in town would be responsible for murdering people. Mm -hmm. It just, it just seems crazy. So I, I think that's there, there's a few things that are going on there, one of which is, again, it's, it's hard to, you know, acknowledge that legacy of violence in, in a small town like this. I mean, it's all the same families, and they talk about that. So it's saying, yeah, you know, my grandfather, my father, my great-grandfather, whatever, he killed some people. He lynched some people. I think, that, I think that's a tough one to kind of face up to, and I think it also undermines their sense of, you know, again, when you talk about this, like longing for the old South, it's like, what is, what is the power structure here? Hmm. You know, they talk about lynching is like erasing that person, you know, it's not just killing them, it's erasing them. And so what does it mean to acknowledge them and bring them back? You know, what what effect does that have? So it's complicated. And I think that's one of the reasons why in that last episode, when they talk about, and I'm not going to remember his name, but who, who does that lynching memorial, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful because yeah. these people were not supposed to be remembered. And, and he's, he's forcing their memories back into sort of the public consciousness. One of my favorite episodes of the podcast was the episode where they dissected what lynching actually is and was. And it is a word that is misused. Uh, has been co-opted um, in some instances by people who, you know, talk about a digital lynching or a, a modern lynching. And, you know, a lynching is a lynching. And I think the podcast does a really great job in giving historical 
historical context and talking to the right historians to really define it. And one of the aspects of lynching that that really like all these crimes have in common is the grotesque display of the victims for the public. Obviously, there were these public lynchings. But even in the case of Isidore's lynching, everyone knew where the body was for days. And like Mm -hmm. kids were riding their bikes over to look at it and people were gawking at it. And it becomes sort of like a thing that just is there in town that's designed to terrorize other black people and to titillate racist white people. Kevin, what did you think of that episode? Yeah, and and also to soothe the nerves of poor white people. Mm. Because as uh, the academics pointed out, the message it sent to black people loud and clear, but the message it sends to white people is that this will never happen to you. Right. So we're all in this together, white people. Mm. And th- and that's the kind of thing that people try to do in the modern age by signaling to other white people that uh, we're doing this and it's never going to happen to you. And that's why you need to be on this side. Right. So it- it's really fascinating because part of the reason and it's by design that historically most of us don't know an awful lot about the acts of lynching and what, you know, what's behind it. And the 4,000 victims, you know, nameless victims, unidentified victims, at least, of, of uh, lynching in the South over a several decade period. In addition to the, you know, the crime, the historical mystery was, uh, you know, it was really compelling. Hmm. Kevin, were you surprised to hear, I mean, this is a, something that we, we sort of get bits and pieces of in other media that we've watched, even recently, even Watchmen sort of touched on this about all of the wealth and land that was stolen from generations of black Americans. I mean, this is a big part of the reparations conversation isn't just sort of, you know, where black people are in America because of the the white supremacist power culture, but because of the actual money and land uh, that was stolen from black people in post-Reconstruction America. Yeah, even I think this is that Isidore Banks' grandmother Mm. was uh, who had been a slave she was a businesswoman was a yeah very successful businesswoman but all of a sudden you know from one census to the next she just sort of just disappears and it's also part of the you know again when we think of uh lynchings we think of it sort of it being you know a victim at random a, a, a black man probably poor was you know targeted by a bunch of guys in a pickup truck and you know like that situation right you never think about it that in a lot of cases people were particularly targeted for maybe hate or political reasons but also because for the economic reason mm. it was so easy to do what amounts to a hostile takeover mm. because while Isidore Banks and others like him may be wealthy and prominent and successful business people there was a certain um social structure that would not protect them mm. from that so they so there were they were marks they were easy marks because if you could you know disrupt their lives in a way that you couldn't with white businessmen you could come in and, and reap the uh, the economic rewards of that crime. I mean, of course, there was the greed component. I mean, Toby, I just kept thinking, and this is one of the reasons why I was troubled by sort of the dropping of the sheriff storyline. I just kept thinking of a sheriff who also runs the tax collector's office. We kept hearing over and over again from all of these black victims of these crimes, you know, and about them in historical context, like they were laid on their taxes and then they would come and, you know, they would take their land. But if you are the one recording who is paying their taxes, what's to say yeah. you're not just not recording it? You're putting the money in your pocket, the tax money. You're recording it as a non-payment, and then you have grounds to take the land. There's so and many. these rich people are $4? Yeah, there's so arrears. many opportunities. I mean, Toby, this is really like, I think one of the underexplored parts of history when it comes to like structural white supremacy in the United States, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, in this case, it's it's hard to know what kind of restraints the sheriff had about what, what he could get away with or, or not. And then you wonder too, it's like, where did, where did that money come from if he didn't actually own you know these pieces of land? And it, it seems like he was probably getting a cut of something. Mm. So, you know, I, I've got my theory about how that all could have happened. But, you know, it's a situation where there's not a whole lot of recourse, hmm. right, for, for black citizens. And if the, if the sheriff does something unjust, there's no, there's no place to go 
you, you've got to you got to physically hold them off. I guess. I mm-hmm. mean, they do tell that story about Isidore and those two guys like driving up on him and him like driving them off because he was an army sniper or something. That's right. <laughs> Shooting at him. It was a shootout. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. So that's, that's a good story. Laura, these reporters uh, use a lot of tools in the um, documentarian and reporting toolbox, but one that I haven't heard of very often is they put up a billboard in the town. Anyone know what happened to Isidore Banks style billboard? Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I was like, good for them. I was like, wow, that was a length that, you know, quite a, quite a length to go to. But what it made me think about was that they were appealing to a generation of people in that town that aren't on social media, that might not be scrolling the internet, that would drive around and see a billboard as a way to know that something was going on about this case where they might not necessarily see other outreach efforts. That was appealing to an older generation, which is the generation they want that actually knows what happened. So, Hmm. but I was like, wow, that was impressive. And then from there, right into, you know, tracking down the daughter of the suspect. She was the little girl that was allegedly attacked by somebody. Yes, that was the house painter who um, allegedly confessed to the Lara Bricker of the town. (laughs) He was involved in another killing uh, where a a teen was suspected of having, you know, chased his stepdaughter and that they chased him and they shot him uh but then ultimately too they actually land on this italian family connection uh with the most likely explanation taylor and neil think is that you know he was killed by italians with adjacent farmland and you know yeah we hear the woman sit remember you know she's no longer living that she remembers her father saying um i just meant to scare him yes yeah and yeah but but they, they do do those two really compelling interviews one with the woman who was the alleged victim of the young boy that and they went to her house that was pretty amazing that was that was really well i and i liked the transparency in that the transparency in the reporting because it was it was like pretty interesting you know they're going and they're like and then everything went to bleep and duty they turn off the microphones and you're like this is going nowhere and and this isn't the first time they've tried to talk to her. I mean, this has been months and months or maybe even longer than that. And how that all unfolds with this, you know, getting heated with her husband on the lawn and you're like, oh, this isn't good. And then they end up spending like, what, six hours in their house? Yeah. And that was, that was really interesting. I loved hearing how that played out. But also, I just feel like people are sort of unburdening themselves with information that they've been holding in for so long. And right. You know, it seems like they were ready. Kevin, one quick question for you. Yeah. Uh, they have another source they try to talk to, which is, I guess, the daughter of the daughter of the Italian farmer that they suspect may have been involved. Oh, yeah. And she doesn't want to be taped. So they do a trick where we sort of get the gist of the conversation because they're only playing us their part of the conversation. Yeah. What did you think of that? Well, I think that was clever. I mean, it's a way, as opposed to just doing the "well, this is what happened" mm. and giving the debrief. You know, I think it's I think it's absolutely uh, fine because you you do hear their effort puts you sort of in that you know in the scene, uh, and you see like how hard they try, and you kind of get you know the real time reaction. So, you know, it's uh, making uh, chicken salad out of chicken parts parts <laughs> you're welcome wayne making the most with what you have exactly right yeah, right yeah. all right let's do what we do panel i'd like for you to tell me and our listeners should they check out unfinished deep south do you give this podcast a thumbs up or thumbs down review laura bricker i'm going to start with you um this is a big thumbs up so like i said earlier this is definitely something that's hard to listen to the details are beyond upsetting but this is i really feel like one of the best best reported, researched, and told stories that we've listened to in a podcast in quite some time. They spent two years researching this. They have sources all over the place. I didn't mention I loved the music choice that they used when they were having sort of the old timers in town recount the history. I just thought it was really well done, and I think it was just a tremendous piece of reporting. So big thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Unfinished Deep South? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's just so much to think about in this one. And, and one of the things I thought about, and we, and we talked about a little bit earlier about how, 
you know, these lynchings where they would leave the bodies so that people could see them and stuff. And it, it reminded me that, you know, Michael Brown in, in Ferguson, the, his body was left in the street for hours. Mm-hmm. What What is the sort of historical resonance of that? Mm. So, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's there's a lot of stuff to think about in this. Um, the, my other thought is that it would make a, it, it's a pretty good companion piece to uh, the second season of In the Dark. Mm. This kind of comes out of the same, you know, institutionalized, systemic, uh, racist society that Curtis Flowers was victimized by. So that's a long way of saying that's it's a big thumbs up. I, I really thought this was great. Uh, highly recommend it. Again, you know, if you start listening to it, you're like, oh, it's a little bit dry. Just give it 15, 20 minutes. I, I, I just think the whole thing was really compelling. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm going thumbs up on this one as well. You know, there are some pieces uh, that are written for time, and there are some that times come and uh, reach them. And it's sort of like they had been preparing this unaware that we would have this moment of, of racial reckoning in our country. So it, it, it is of a perfect moment to come out with this. It's all the things that we like about podcasts and that we have given uh, you know praise to before. Thorough, in-depth, long-form, uh, highly committed, uh, high production value. Again, not a lot of sizzle, but an awful lot of substance. And I certainly like it when um, they look at a larger societal goal. When they start off by saying, we're going to try to solve a 65-year-old cold case you know, that's a pretty high bar, and I'm always worried. And, you know, to stay in the spoiler-free zone here, I think that they gave us an acceptable answer um, for what may have happened, and I'm okay with that. And lastly, you know, I learned that, uh, you know, lynchings are not about keeping score or settling scores. It's about wiping the scoreboard clean and just an effort to get rid of a person and everything that they ever stood for and everything that they ever had. And uh, that's a that's a powerful message for people to learn if they haven't already. You know, I agree with the last part of what you just said, and that is the main reason why I'm giving this podcast a thumbs up. It is very thorough, very interesting. I learned a lot. The writing and storytelling overall is very strong. I do have some qualms with the production and the way it's put together. I do feel, um, as I said in the discussion part of it, a little bit of detachment uh, between the documentarians and their subjects, not just the mispronunciation of Isidore's name, but also the sense of, you know, being outsiders coming in. I'm not sure they ever cross that Rubicon where they ever feel like insiders in the story to me as a listener. And that is important. That is what differentiates to me, you know, the In the Dark team, also, you know, predominantly white storytelling team going to the South to tell a story about predominantly black characters. There was a insideriness to the way that story was told that I don't think they quite achieved with Unfinished Deep South. And and unlike Laura, I really didn't care for the music and the sound elements in the show. I thought they were like a little bit too on the nose. They sounded a little bit too much like the choices you would pick for a film and not for a podcast. So those are quibbles. Overall, Unfinished Deep South, thumbs up for the project. Can't wait to listen to season two of Unfinished, which I guess is coming out soon. So I think it's actually already out. Oh, okay. Well, we'll have to I check that out I think when some people go to look for it, they <laughs> might go for Unfinished Deep South and it's Unfinished. Not Whiskey Creek, but some other something Something creek. like that. Yeah, yeah everything's yeah. meshing together. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Moving on. Now, before we do our second review tonight, Kevin, we do have some business to discuss. We do. We have a Patreon after show this week. And what are we going to be talking about in the after show, Kevin? Well, we're going to be uh, discussing our own reactions to the true crime update. Listen to you. Uh, of Curtis Flowers and charges being dropped 
with prejudice by the uh, Mississippi Attorney General's office. Mm. Can we hear a little bit more about Laura Bricker's pet detective certification? Yeah, and I think we're also going <laughs> to learn what exactly happened at the polling place. Yes. And I think it has to do with a pair of old titties. <laughs> uh, it does. An uh, old pair uh, of titties. We don't know if they're old, do we? Yeah. It was, I I heard they were yeah. 60 to 70-year-old titties. All right. We'll talk about that so on the after show. So they were hanging kind of low. How, how old was the person? Wow, <laughs> <laughs> we should also say we have a very stirring new episode of Married with Podcast in our feed. Kevin and I, we do an advice podcast that we haven't been able to record for a while because of Kevin's voice, but we are back. And on it, there's a question about a COVID-denying uh, babysitter playgroup situation and a question that legit makes me cry. So check out Married with Podcast. You can get that at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Don't forget Laura Bricker, pet detective. Leave it to Bricker podcast. I'll leave it to Bricker, yeah. Yes, where she'll go even deeper into her pet detectivery. Yeah. All right, Kevin, uh, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? We do. Bonnie West and Alyssa Root. Bless you. Bless you, Bonnie and Alyssa. Really, bless you. Bless you. You can join Bonnie and Alyssa and our many, many other listeners who have subscribed to our Patreon and getting all the extra content we put there. Toby's Book Club, Married with Podcast, Lara's Podcast, of course, and the Crime Writers on After Show. Head on over now to Crime Writers on slash Partners in Crime Media. You won't regret it. We put a lot of content on that feed. All right, shall we do the second review of the podcast? Yes. I felt like I was soaring. It was like almost like a magic. I felt like I was getting downloaded a, a, a book of knowledge about people, about society, about the world in general. When Sarah Edmondson joined the personal improvement organization Nexium, she believed she had found her purpose in life. She was among those who rose through the ranks and fell into the orbit of the Executive Success Program and Nexium's leader, their so-called vanguard, Keith Rainier. I say a skeptic is someone who seeks to turn magic into science, and I'm one of them. A cynic is someone who seeks to turn good to bad. But Sarah and documentarian turned Nexium protege Mark Vicente grew uneasy as their benevolent self-help group evolved into a cult with a pyramid scheme to recruit sex slaves and brand them with Rainier's initials. There's a lot of things I'm starting to see about the organization. It's just not right. HBO's The Vow is a deep dive into the Nexium organization captured in real time from the inside by the people living it. The nine-part documentary is filmed with video, recorded phone calls, and emotional interviews chronicling the journey from self-improvement movement to criminal enterprise. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for the first few episodes of The Vow. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Also, a note of transparency, our ad agency placed ads for The Vow on our show. We will not be taking that into consideration during our reviews. All right. Now, I'm going to throw that transparency claim away because yeah. this documentary is super freaking good. <laughs> uh, and I'm just going to say that now. Toby, I know that you are enjoying The Vow as much as I am, but there are like some secret sauce elements that are making this really stand apart from so many other multi-part documentaries that we've watched about cults. I mean, I think about, you know, Wild Wild Country. I think about, you know, we've watched, this isn't the only show like this that we've watched. And we listened to a podcast about this very same topic. So, Toby, what do you think are the magic elements that makes this stand apart? Well, I think, you know, at least so far, I think there's two There's two big things. One is that uh, Mark and Sarah, as as personalities, you know, they're both, they, they're smart. They seem extremely nice. Uh, they're very articulate and and sort of introspective, and are kind of relatable, I guess. But you're you're able to kind of comprehend sort of why Nexium would be so attractive to people by watching and hearing about their sort of seduction into the movement. And then you also can kind of identify with sort of their dismay and horror and feelings of betrayal when they find that it's not that, that they've been deceived like they hadn't mm. really realized what was going on and i think the second thing is is just the sheer amount of like video and audio footage they have part of which is because mark's a documentary filmmaker and he was there to make a documentary film about uh, nexium i 
started shooting like in 2005, and then a number of people said to me they'd like to learn. So I began this program of like teaching people, you know, how to shoot, how to do sound, you know, how to edit. But then the other thing is they became so freaking paranoid that they're just taping all their phone conversations. Mm. Here's the yeah. problem. Anything I say to yeah. you will likely get yeah. back up the channel. I'm very worried about the people trying to get information. So you have all these, in the course of this experience, really important, sort of emotionally fraught phone conversations that you just listen to. Right. And, they, and it's it just makes what was going on seem very real and very compelling. And very present. Like, it's happening now, it feels like, a lot of times in the documentary. It never is a good idea in the long run to have a documentarian in your cult. <laughs> it just seems to have, you know, been proven yeah. out again and again. And everybody in the cult apparently also wanted to learn filmmaking, so he has footage from them, too. I know. And that way, it is like Wild Wild Country, though, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we have had things where we have had the podcast version and yep. the... And the uh, then the documentary version. And I just got to say, like, the ones that have the visuals, I mean, just it's you can't compete. Right. I mean, you're, it's very hard to compete. But these are, I think this is very different. Not very different, but it is different from the podcast. Well, it's exceptionally different in a couple of ways. We should just say this is not like other cult things we've watched where there's film. I mean, in Wild Wild Country, there was a tremendous amount of historical film. Yep. In Yogi, in the, the yoga one, Bikram. Bikram, there was a tremendous amount of historical film. This historical film, this film, illustrates every single element of the story they're telling because they filmed everything. They didn't just film their sessions. They filmed their parties. They filmed every interaction. They filmed their stupid volleyball games. He has on tape when Allison Mack first met Keith Rainier, like at a volleyball game. He has all of it. Yeah. And it also feels very present. But, but Kevin, it's also the structure, I think, of this that is so different from Escaping Nexium, the Uncovered podcast, which, by the way, we all liked very much. Yeah. But Escape, Escaping Nexium starts with Sarah Edmondson, same character. The opening is, we know she was in this horrible cult, and we hear how horrible it was, and then it, we sort of go backwards and how she got into it. Right. The documentary takes a very different approach by seducing us, the viewer, with kind of understanding how it was that everybody got involved in this thing, right? Yeah. I mean, her story about the, the DOS initi initiation, which included the soldering pen, uh, that was in Escaping Nexium episode one. And we don't hear that story until midway through episode three of The Vow. And so when we start The Vow, other than a signpost in the beginning that this ends up in criminal court, teasing that this is why you want to sit through an hour of the Tupperware party that is Nexium. We go into this not really knowing what the crimes are and what the bad behavior is. So there are, there are advantages of doing it both ways. If you start with saying what it is, as in escaping Nexium, you immediately know what the, the consequences are. And then you're, bought it, then you're hooked on like why you have to get to the end of the story. Mm. This is, you're right, it's a slower seduction. And it's what's referred to in the industry as the delayed fuck. <laughs> you remember that phrase. Not literally, right. but that's, that is sort of like how they, they build these stories where they sort of like pull you in, push you out, pull you in, push you out. Yeah. And I will tell you, Laura, like Kevin and I watched the first episode of mm -hmm. The Vow. Yeah. The whole time I was like, this thing sounds awesome. Like, I, I'm not sure that I would ever join like any kind of self-improvement seminar. But like if one of my, if I, if I was friends with Sarah Edmondson and she's rad mm -hmm. and she was like, hey, I just started doing this thing and it's a little weird. You go and it's kind of 80s and they make you wear this stupid piece of cloth around mm -hmm. your neck. But ultimately, like, honestly, I just feel like I'm more confident and like I'm doing better at my acting auditions. And when I don't do well, like I don't care as much. It just seems kind of nice. It's like summer camp. Everyone's playing volleyball. Mm -hmm. Laura, didn't it seem freaking awesome for the first hour of this now documentary? come to the bathroom. I'll take a photo of your tits. That's later. Oh, that's later. That's years right. later. Years yeah. later. Years later. Yeah. Old lady tits. You know what it reminded me of? As I was listening, you know, it, it definitely reminded me of fraternities and sororities and summer camp kind of meshed together for adults because there's a lot of things that were sort of 
parallel to me as I'm listening to this, um, as, you know, especially with like the slave and master thing. I mean, that was a very common thing when people were pledging fraternities and sororities when I was in college and you would have like hell week and you had to be the slave to one of the sisters or brothers in your fraternity and do everything much like they did in this. But then you're also going to these like seminars and things to like learn which soup spoon to use and to better yourself and all that kind of stuff. So there was definitely, as I was watching this, it was interesting to hear from this angle how people got in in the beginning before all the crazy branding stuff, because that's what we heard first last time. And I was like, why the hell would anybody ever join this? This is freaking bonkers. And as you're listening to this and you're looking at the other people that are there, you're like, hey, this lady was in Star Wars and like this person's in... The whole cast of Battlestar Galactica was in this damn Yeah. Cult. So you're really, like... It's incredible. You're like, yeah. how how bad can it be? And you know... We're going to get Starbucks. And we should point out those things happened years later. I mean, like, like they joined this thing. They were yeah. there for a really long time. And then these things sort of unfolded sort of through like the, the, it took a long time for some of these things to become apparent to some of these yeah. people in this organization. Now, Toby, uh, one of the things that's extremely apparent to me is that Keith Rainier claims to be one of the smartest people in the world. And I think maybe he is. Just kidding. Toby Ball, how do you think a man like Keith is able to convince people that he's the smartest man in the world? That is a good question, which I did not think has been answered yet. I dug into this, by the way. Oh, you have an answer? There is this off-book uh, society that you can join that's like an unmonitored IQ test. And then they, uh-huh. they and he did this like way back in the 80s. He used to have a legit like MLM, like yeah. selling vitamins or something. And before he did that, the way he'd pitch himself was that he had taken, he belonged to this like secret high IQ society and gotten like a 240 on this IQ test, which by the way, he took by himself in his house that no one else was <laughs> present for. Uh, so yeah, but that is the claim that he makes, right? That he's the smartest man in the world. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I find a little bit hard to understand is that Mark and Sarah, who are both clearly quite smart, like why they would buy into that because the stuff that he actually, when you actually hear him talking about stuff and you kind of almost hear the gas from the crowd about his insight, doesn't seem very different from a whole bunch of other people saying very, very similar things. I mean, it seems like there's this shtick and everybody puts their little twist on it. So it's not exactly the same thing that you get if you do Scientology or you do whatever that thing was, which I forget. Uh, we did a couple of weeks ago where the guy like sent the people out to be homeless. But it was, you know, it all starts in sort of the same way. It's, are your, is your life not the way you want it to be? What is keeping you from achieving your goals? We can get to the bottom of that. You know, you don't have to spend years of, of therapy or whatever, we can do it with our tech. We can do it really quickly. And so why, I I mean, maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago, whenever these guys got kind of involved in it, maybe that wasn't quite as obvious and known that this was sort of the shtick. But, you know, they both seem like, especially Mark, like he's definitely a searcher, right? You know, Mm. that, that seems to be his thing is that he's trying to find answers. He's trying to find big answers. So I could see where a guy like Keith, who claims that he has the big answers, might be attractive, but put on your skeptical caps for for a few minutes and just like, what is this guy really saying? Like, when he comes right down to it, what what are his insights? And are they really that original? I have a theory. I have a theory, Toby. Okay. I think the magic sauce that makes Keith seem like the smartest man in the world is the fact that he has this sidekick, Nancy Salzman who just comes off like a corporate trainer. I mean, she's saying a lot of the same things he's saying. Are you talking about Proctor? Yes. Because I call her that. Proctor. But she just comes off as like the woman that, I mean, I work at a place where we've brought in women that look exactly like Nancy Salzman who come in and sort of like give you your best practices for how to communicate between teams or all the things. She comes off as so like square middle of the road corporate America trainer that if she, you know, isn't claiming to be the smartest person in the world, but she's saying he is, I think it lends credibility. The other thing is unlike what we saw in wild, wild country and other, you know, cults that have attracted like very lost or broken people, the people that were attracted to Nexium are not that lost and not that broken. They're like, 
a little bit lost. They're just, they're just looking to be a little bit better. They want to have a little more ethics. They want to have a little bit more success. But Wild Wild Country, I think, was, I mean, those were very successful people, too. Some of them were. It's true. But yeah. It was also a weird time. But but they also collected homeless people from the streets of Los Angeles. And yeah. that was just I don't, I don't, for voter disinformation. Yeah, I don't think they really bought into the, uh, into the Bogwans, mumbo jumbo. Um, but with these people, I mean, you have so many actors and people that are into filmmaking. Because I was looking, I'm like, how can these people be this? Like, how can they believe this? I mean, first of all, I think that Nancy Salzman lady has like crazy eyes. When I see her, I'm like, she's crazy. <laughs> Just she had like a very intense look in her eye, and I was like, whoo. But when I'm thinking about the number of actors and and the people that are coming into this cult, they are people that they look great, they look so accomplished. But really, when you're between acting jobs, you're probably questioning yourself: Are you going to get a new role? What's your next role going to be? So I think there probably is beneath the surface a lot of sort of self-doubt amongst a lot of those people that at first you're like why are these people they, they don't look like they are the type of people that would be attracted to something like this do you know what I mean I do but I don't I, I mean I think in some cases it's the truth but I, I I don't think I mean I think it's a mistake to think that only people who have some weakness or in some way broken or whatever are attracted to, to this kind of thing that's I true mean, I think you know that, you're right you're right like I think a guy like Mark I mean I, I don't you know, he just seems to have this personality where he he's a searcher. You know, he thinks there there are deeper truths, and that's what he's trying to find out. And he thinks Keith is going to give it to him. And I think that's part of this disappointment. Is, you know, I spent a decade of my life kind of thinking this guy was gonna was gonna fill me in, and then it turns out he's just trying to sleep with these models. Yeah, you know, these I mean, actresses. Nippy was pretty pissed about it too, right? Nippy, Nippy. was not happy. <laughs> poor Nippy, that poor guy. I know. What's up with all the weddings? <laughs> well, they have. Who else are they going to marry besides people that they live with all the time? By the way, I feel so bad because um, a listener wrote in and said, you know, this all happened like in her. She lives like in the town where they all bought those houses and stuff. Albany. And then I, well, the outskirts of Albany. Oh. I think the number of times I have disparaged the greater Albany area on this podcast, it's been a, a many times where I've talked about just like yeah. how much I hate Albany. Watching this documentary, and it's like. They're trying to convince these people to move from gorgeous Vancouver to Albany? What? Corporate headquarters. <laughs> Gotta come to Battle Creek, Michigan if you want to work for Kellogg's. <laughs> Kevin, I have a filmmaking question to ask you because I kept thinking about this. Yeah. Um, there are so many very sophisticated sleights of hand in the way this documentary is put together in the early episodes when it's sort of unfolding how it is we have these insights. First of all, they sort of convince us that everybody is broken up when they're all talking to all these people. Right. There are all these calls that Bonnie plays when she's recounting her having to break up with Mark and like her coming to realize there's something bad going on. We, we see her hit play. She's playing the tapes for us. It turns out it was actually Mark's tape. He was the one who was recording. Did you really enjoy like all these sleights of hand as much as I've been enjoying them? Yeah, I didn't want to get too distracted, but I was thinking about, well, how do they get that? Yeah. How do they get that? Yeah, so in the end, a lot of the media that is gathered has to do with this self-preservation, and I'm recording this for legal purposes in the future, and I, you know, maybe say, hey, maybe I'll make a documentary. But all early on, the stuff that's in Mark's possession is stuff because he was shooting a video because of the vanity yeah. of Keith, and in that way, it's very much like Wild Wild Country. He's very much like the Bogwan. That they have to have this recorded and documented and preserved for all time because I'm, you know, when they go by a new name and you're gonna be all deferential to me and celebrate my birthday by performing for me and things like that. But Mark filmed everything. He filmed the scene where Bonnie was breaking up with him. It was just the two of them well, alone. Yeah, yeah. He filmed everything. Them driving in the car, it was filmed. Them, you know, sitting on the sidelines at the stupid midnight volleyball games. He filmed that. He filmed... Midnight volleyball! <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we saw Mark playing volleyball. So, But he explained how everybody got involved. Yeah. Everybody learned how to use a camera and a right. boom. And, a, and yeah, so there, there's just constantly people just recording stuff. And so for the person at HBO who had to go through 
seven billion hours <laughs> of volleyball it was games. It was the film company that made Oh, I know, but it's like, man, maybe that's why this is nine hour long episodes. Yeah. It's because there's just so much stuff. It could have been, as far as I'm concerned, it could be 900 episodes. I'd watch every single well, one. Well, I, th- I happen to think it's a little dense. I like it. I mean, I, I like it, but there. You know, we we hear about, well, then for this three weeks, he wasn't talking to me. And then I went on a walk for him and he talked to me again. And it was just, there is just a lot here that could be cut out for the sake of telling a cleaner story. Hmm. You know, there are, I counted, there are seven editors listed on the credits. And apparently, they're okay with everything. None of them say, oh, yeah, you know, maybe we don't need that. They're like, yeah, throw that in, too. See, I like it. I think it's, I like the denseness of it. And I think all those scenes, it's disorienting. And sometimes, like, the timing of it is disorienting. You don't know where you are in the timeline. You know, it's like 2004, then it's 2017. And then it's, I actually, I think that's what makes it a good film. Yeah. That's what sets it apart from a lot of this stuff. Toby, do you play? Yeah, yeah so, so do I. Um, Toby, do you like play a lot of midnight volleyball with people that are in your cult? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> it's not an odd detail that he would choose, like, everyone had to go. Yeah, I mean, I uh, uh, don't get me started. But, <laughs> but yeah. Didn't your I boss mean, I, ever do that? I'm having a little get together. You don't have to come, but, but you I do. Mean, you do have to come. Yeah. Mm. Right. I mean, get everybody sweaty and worked up, and then you can, yeah. like, Give them some insight. So, Laura, what did you think about all of the, you know, we really get kind of inside a couple of marriages in this documentary. We get inside Sarah's marriage to Nippy. We get inside Mark and Bonnie's marriage. And Mark and Bonnie's story, you know, they are both pretty broken up. Mm -hmm. It's not 100% clear to me, like, what their status is now. I mean, obviously, they're both out now. But it's painful, right? Yeah. And it felt having so much right on the scene footage, like, so it was like so raw and personal, the information that we were saying. And the scene where we see Mark and Bonnie basically breaking up, I just, I can't imagine wanting anybody else to see something like that. I mean, it was so personal, but I felt like they got back together when they both were out and starting to sort of realize like, hey, something is off here. But I found it just so incestuous the way that, I mean, and I guess that's what happens when you're involved in something like this, but it's like, even when they're showing the wedding videos, the person performing the wedding, Lauren Salzman, I'm I'm like, okay, you can't, you can't even get like an actual minister. You've got somebody from your cult doing your wedding. All the wedding guests Mm -hmm. are, of course. Yeah. I'm like, (laughs) Laura, what's the purpose of having a cult if there isn't somebody involved that can marry everybody? I mean, it's like those people, like I had a friend who did a wedding once and it was like, she got that like, you know, online minister license you could get in like Colorado. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. I think, you know, as this goes forward, I'm hoping to hear a little bit more about where these couples are now, now that all of Mm. this is out. And did they reconcile? We'll find out. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious. I'm also really curious about the criminal element of this and sort of how this DOS thing got started. And I think we're getting there. And of course, I've done a ton of reading about this. Every episode of this, I go into some sort of reading rabbit hole where I want to learn more. But Toby, I mean, the gist really seems to be that the actress, Allison Mack, who like was pretty successful when she first joined this cult, and I don't I don't think she's been doing much acting in, in recent years. Uh, she is the closest to and perhaps the most obsessed with Keith Rainier. And along with Lauren Saltzman, Nancy's daughter, they kind of plotted with Keith to hatch this scheme where it was this, you know, like Scientology, by the way, it's another way it's similar. There's a million little branches and departments and businesses uh, underneath what's called ESP, the Executive Success Program. There's like the men's one. There's the choir. Yeah. There's the actor's studio one. And then there was this women's, secret women's group. Toby, what do you think of this idea that they're able to convince all of these women because they're so groomed that everything is about improvement to get into this structure that is just so clearly from the outset, it seems so different from everything else they're doing. I mean, you don't hear about anything else they're doing that requires you to say, to tell a story, a lie about how your father molested you and send a nude photo that same night as collateral. Yeah, although I guess they do show him talking about that at one point, about honesty or trust or whatever, and about using collateral. But, you know, it's like, again, it's like Scientology in which... They don't. They don't start you out with that stuff. I mean, you're you're way in by the time they they lay that on you. 
So you've already been desensitized to a certain extent to kind of weird stuff. You know, they, they, it sneaks up on you. And then, I mean, I think Sarah kind of talks through it, which is like, this is 100% fucked up. Yet she gets talked into doing it. She's like, I don't want to do this. I was thinking about how do I escape? You know, she, it's her best friend who's getting her to do this. So if she's going to be able to like rationalize with anybody, it should be her best friend. But she gets talked into it and she lies down and she, you know, I think in her, you know, mind takes it like a champ and she doesn't squirm and she, you know, she gets this thing done. And it, it, it reminded me a lot of the whole, when you're like a fifth level Thetan or something and you, you, you get to hear about the, the secret about the, you know, the giants who lived in the volcanoes in Scientology. Mm. And it's like, okay, you know, now we're going to see how far we can push you. Mm. Does this make you stop? And not only does it not make most of them stop, it's like, oh, this is awesome. I will get some more people to do this. Yes, and I'll get some more people to do unpaid labor for me. I'll get some more people to eat 500 calories a day, which apparently was the diet that Keith Rainier wants these women to be on because he likes his women to be extremely thin. I mean, there's a lot of like self-destructive uh, bodily harm stuff being done here. It's incredibly disturbing. It's also strangely fascinating. Um, I think we should do what we do. I think we should let our listeners know, should they check out the Vow on HBO, a new prestige documentary coming out in nine parts about Nexium, uh, the cult that's been in the news and that's been in the subject of another podcast, Uncover Escaping Nexium, that we did cover on this show. So if you want to check out our review of that, go to our back catalog. But right now, you're going to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review of The Vow on HBO. Laura Bricker, what say you about The Vow? I'm giving this a thumbs up. I think that it was great to hear from so many additional viewers points about Nexium. You know, when we listened to the podcast a while back, Sarah was featured very prominently and the the sheer amount of video and phone recordings and records that they have in this case, it really just brings this story to a whole nother level. So big thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the vow? Yeah, I'm a big thumbs up too. I have no, certainly we're only a third of the way through this thing. It's like hard to comprehend that they've got twice as much still to come. But I'm psyched to watch it. So uh, big thumbs up. Kevin Flynn? Yeah, I'm going to go thumbs up as well. There's a lot here. It may be too much. Um, I do find myself about uh, two thirds of the way through each episode starting to fade a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I think that it might be a little navel gazy ish for the folks that were in Nexium, and that's what's driving it. But like I said, I'm still thumbs up. I still think this is an interesting story. I don't know where the next six hours are going, but um, I want to see where it goes. It's visually striking. There's a a whole bunch of real-time video and audio, so uh, it's not just... You know, it's good looking back. It's you're you're uh, with it in real time as it's going forward. So uh, that makes it a very unique documentary. Kevin, I'm so disappointed that you don't love this as much as I do. I am giving uh, The Vow a huge thumbs up. Already, I can tell this is for me going to be, for me, one of the best long-form, multi-part documentaries we've watched. We very often complain on this show about how some you know, documentaries don't use time well. It's like they contracted for a certain number of episodes. They feel like they have to fill them. I am not getting any sense with this that I will become fatigued of the subject or fatigued with these characters. As Toby points out, every single person we get to know in this documentary is immensely, as much as it can be so when they're all so attractive and they're all like actors and filmmakers and so forth, immensely relatable in their vulnerability and what they're willing to share with us. And the very, very clever bait and switch filmmaking techniques it's really beautiful to watch. Uh, even Mark's, you know, sloppy filming when he was a cult member. Some of those shots are just composed beautifully. There's sort of a dreamy quality about it. I love the music. I love the stylized elements they use of the characters, you know, walking in the sand and the drone shots. I just think it's gorgeous. It's compelling. I am going to watch every single minute of this, and I'm going to be like with bated breath waiting for the next episode. So huge thumbs up for me for the vow.
Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day, and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. week. Jimmy McDonald thought he was going to drown in the middle of Lake George in New York. His kayak had flipped and he was sliding out of his ill-fitting life preserver. Sure he was a goner, Jimmy prayed to God for help. And that's when a boat full of priests showed up. They grabbed his hands and pulled him safely aboard. But what were those priests doing on Lake George? Well, they were all on a floating tiki bar. Yeah, of course they were. (laughs) Jimmy said that after being sober for seven years, it was kind of ironic being saved by a booze cruise. It was also ironic for the priests. Jesus told his disciples, I will make you fishers of men. They didn't realize he meant that literally. (laughs) So, panel, the Lord's work interrupted the party for these priests. What was the most popular cocktail on their floating tiki bar? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? I'll tell you what it wasn't, Rebecca. So I, when I worked in the newsroom, had a friend who was a church hopper. And she used to go around to different churches. And so she ended up often going to dinner with this Father Finnegan. And she was a non-drinker. And she used to order the virgin. And Father Finnegan wasn't. And Father Finnegan was drinking. And my friend would say, I'll have a Virgin Mary. And Father Finnegan turned like five shades of fuchsia every time she did that. So mm. that is what they are not drinking. There are no Virgin Marys on the booze cruise. All right. What do you think, Toby Ball? What is the most popular cocktail on these priests floating tiki bar Lake George booze cruise? A, uh, a squalid nunnery. <laughs> <laughs> is that a drink? I don't know. I just want to <laughs> Frangelico. <laughs> what do you think, Kevin? It should Fine? be. Uh, I think it was the frozen Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't drink it today, but you drink it tomorrow when you need to get out of bed. <laughs> That's very good. Thank you. That's a deeply Catholic joke that yeah. I'm not sure I understand. You can explain it to me later. <laughs> <laughs> Lazarus. I thought it was just like Cavassier because they're so smooth, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so we should probably end it on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a Cat of the Week this week? Oh, we do. So this week's Cat of the Week is Nitro. And Nitro belongs to Samantha Leaf, one of the members of the Brichter Scale Group. He is a very adorable orange tabby cat, giving her a belly massage while she's watching the Great British Baking Show. And I just wanted to give a shout out to all the Brichter Scale people. They've been so nice and supportive since Felix went missing. And they've been posting me all sorts of cat search tips and cat help, including apparently... Um, according to Allison Barber, if you call cats in German, they will come out of hiding. So some, huh. yeah. So thank you so much, all you Brichter scalers, for all the uh, cat search tips you've sent my way. Hmm. And I just want to give a shout out to an orange cat we met this week. We were having dinner at my boss Jim's house. Oh, and his wife Pam, his wonderful wife Pam, and they have an orange cat named Soul, mm-hmm. which is the fattest cat. Like he's got a tiny little head and a gigantic body. So that cat needs a CPAP machine. <laughs> <laughs> I just. Want want to give a shout out to that (laughs) wonderful cat that we met this week was he chatty no but he was uh out of proportion in many many ways (laughs) that were very charming laura bricker if folks want to reach out to you and pitch their cats or dogs or other sundry animals to be cat of the week how can they find you on twitter at laura bricker and toby ball folks want to reach out to you and talk to you and me about the vow on hbo and all the reasons why we like it so much how can they find you on twitter at toby ball and h and Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and tell you how much better your voice is sounding week after week, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm a Kevin B. Flynn. <laughs> and if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy or follow the show at Crime Writers On. You can watch this very podcast on our new show produced exclusively for Facebook Watch. Find it by searching your app or at facebook.com slash watch slash Crime Writers On podcast. I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll
you'll get all of our extra content, including the Crime Writers on After Show right now. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stand Meredith Plunkett. She's still on maternity leave, but man, she's also still in our credits. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we warm up to midnight volleyball and where I am constantly apologizing to all of our greater Albany area listeners. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Want to bring Toby in? Sure. Lauren, are you there? She's reconnecting her cables. You don't want to have Laura and Toby on at the same time. You're afraid it'd be too much sexiness? If both Laura Bricker and Toby both the, the same overall time. overall smoldering sexuality. <laughs> Unbearable. Yeah. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.